Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Big Brother is doing more than just watching. It's spending and regulating and providing liquidity. And it's not going away anytime soon. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Well, that used to be a sort of sarcastic joke. But this week, Global Wall Street got a taste of just how much the government is intertwined with our markets and with our businesses. From Fed Chair Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen reassuring markets, they'll continue to be there for them. So at the Fed, we will continue to provide the economy the support that it needs for as long as it takes. We should be clear-eyed about the hole we're digging out of. To big tech company CEOs being taken to the woodshed once again by Congress. To state governments deciding day-to-day how open their economies will be. So it's no surprise that the markets this week basically paid attention to the Fed and prospects for more spending, with or without taxes, and prospects for reopening. How does an investor make decisions in this world so dependent on political risk? We asked our roundtable of Jillian Tett, chair of the editorial board and editor-at-large U.S. at the Financial Times, Peter Krauss, chairman and founder of Aperture Investors. Well, David, that is a terrific question because I think a lot of investors right now and ordinary people are desperately keen that when the pandemic ends, they'll go back to normality. And they assume that normality might mean an economic recovery and some kind of political peace. We'll go back to the kind of analysis of the economy that everyone's taught about at MBAs and things like that. But I think that assuming that political risk is going to disappear after the pandemic is probably a big mistake. Because we've seen the government intervene in the economy to an astonishing degree during the pandemic. The question of how it does or does not roll that back could prove to be very politically divisive. So, Peter, what about as an investor? Uh, As I say, in 2020, this may be oversimplifying it, but it was basically be in the market, you'll do fine because the government's going to bail you out. 
now we're in a different world as we look into recovery. How does an investor take into account what the Fed may or may not do? Jay Powell seems to be saying, just let them play right now when it comes to the 10-year yield. And then we have more spending coming out of Congress. How does an investor take that all into account, or do they? Well, I want to build on what Jillian said, because I think uh, it's, a very, it's a very significant probability that the voter or the populace uh, decides that the positive impact of government stimulus in the size and scale that it has taken over the last 18 months is a positive, and that trying to redistribute wealth into uh, a broader base might actually be a good thing. The economy's stronger, the market's up, interest rates haven't risen that much, inflation's not out of control. I like this, I want more of this, and I think Jillian's right on the money that that's going to continue. Now, the interesting thing about that is that we've been through 30 years of declining interest rates. Let me give you a, a couple of facts that I think is interesting. Over the last 10 years, inflation is 1.7%. Over that last 10 years, the average U.S. Treasury yield is 2.2%. That is a negative rate of interest, real rate of interest of 50 basis points. Excuse me, positive uh, of 50 basis points. You subtract the yield 2.2 minus the 1.7. Okay, so today we have 1.7 uh, uh, 10 year, 1.6 10 year, and we have an inflation that's trying to get to 2%. Well, that would give us a negative yield. Well, how long are we gonna have that negative yield? We can't have negative yields in a period of prosperity, growth, government stimulus, fiscal stimulus, and the things that Jillian is talking about. So as an investor, the backdrop here is rising rates, rising rates secularly over time and growth, but that will lead to periods of inflation. And those periods of inflation will hurt equities. They'll hurt bonds. So as an investor, fundamental investing is going to become more important. And the backdrop you have to assume is growth, higher inflation, higher interest rates. So Jillian, what does that do for overall GDP growth, whether the United States, but global growth as a practical matter? Are you looking at increasing GDP growth even without further fiscal stimulus? I think absolutely we are heading to a big rebound. Call it the roaring 20s if you want, call it anything else. And the fact that we're having basically a rebound after the pandemic coinciding with these extraordinarily large fiscal support programs and super loose monetary policy is a very striking combination. As Peter says, the fact that we have negative real rates right now at a time when people are forecasting 6-7% growth in the US economy is astonishing if you want to be um, charitable, or I would say completely nuts. Um, and I think that the Fed's- I'm on the nuts point, uh, Jillian. <laughs> Well, I've been open about this many times. I think it's completely nuts. I think the biggest mistake the Fed made was to be give the impression it was time dependent, i.e. it was setting Fed policy according to a timeline rather than data dependent, i.e. reacting to the data. And the fact that the Fed keeps indicating it's going to keep rates super low until 2024, I think is setting itself up for a very nasty accident, because I would agree with Peter that there is a chance that the markets are going to start putting pressure on the Fed to act sooner rather than later. And that would really wrong for investors. And one quick thing to think about, everyone's talking about the roaring 20s, you know, boom, 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 isn't that great? Remember what the roaring 20s after the pandemic then led to? Massive stock market bubble, 
it burst huge political upheaval and tension. And it's not difficult to imagine that, that could be the kind of scenario that we're heading for again now. Thanks to Jillian Tett of the Financial Times and Peter Krauss of Aperture Investors. Coming up, Turkey makes yet another about face on monetary policy. We ask the Dean of Emerging Markets Investors, Mark Mobius, what it means for Turkey and for others. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Turkey's President Erdogan shook markets again by replacing the head of his central bank again, this time after just four months on the job. Naji Abal was the third central bank chief ousted in less than two years. Here's former British ambassador to Turkey, Sir Peter Westmacott. President Erdogan has had it in his head for a long time that high interest rates are a cause of inflation, and most orthodox economists think the opposite. Mr. Abal's successor, Shahab Kabjolu, falls more in line with President Erdogan's unorthodox thinking about interest rates and inflation. Well, we were really expecting, uh, given the heights that we've seen from the previous central bank governor, that eventually inflation will start going down. And it would have if they had maintained policies um, and their credibility. That's Shamela Khan, director of emerging market debt for Alliance Bernstein. Kavjolo's predecessor raised interest rates by 875 basis points in his short tenure, trying to slow Turkey's inflation, which runs at about 15 percent a year. But putting a more dovish central bank chief in place didn't sit well with foreign exchange traders. The lira plunged as much as 15% on the announcement. Here's John Hardy, head of FX strategy at Saxo Bank. If you look at how the, the behavior in the Turkish lira has been versus the rest of emerging markets, it's, it's pretty idiosyncratic. It's its own story. This isn't the first time that the lira has struggled. There was a currency crisis in 2018 after President Trump doubled tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from Turkey. And it stabilized only after the central bank took rates all the way up to 24% for almost a year. By 2019, rate cuts started coming back. Markets didn't like that, even though the new governor has not yet reversed the, the interest rate hike, which was implemented last Thursday. And he has said that there won't be a further adjustment for another three weeks. That, again, was Sir Peter Westmacott, former British ambassador to Turkey. In a speech to his ruling party this week, President Erdogan tried to win back the trust of international investors, assuring them 
that the recent volatility doesn't reflect Turkey's economy. Again, here's Alliance Bernstein's Shamela Khan. It's going to be very hard to get credibility back. I think the best they can do is try to stabilize the situation. Um, so stability in the situation is probably the most optimistic scenario. The central bank game of musical chairs is holding Turkey back during an emerging market's revival. Flows into the world's developing economies have increased 29% in the past five years, while Turkey's have fallen 54%. It is going to be a very selective year for emerging markets, and it will be for risk assets as well. That's Bloomberg opinion columnist Mohammed El Aryan. To understand what happened in Turkey and what it could mean for investors, we turn to the man who pioneered investing in emerging markets. Mark Mobius, partner and co-founder of Mobius Capital Partners, and he said it all starts with the currency. In all these emerging markets, uh, everybody's focused on the currency. I mean, the first question I get whenever I talk about emerging markets, clients say, what about the currency? Is there a risk in the currency? So, and of course, the central banks are supposed to be responsible for a steady currency and the currency that's not volatile. And so whenever you see a central bank being a leader being replaced, that creates a panic, despite the fact that if you notice the statement about the new central bank governor in Turkey, his objective will be to have a stable lira, Turkish lira. So I think it's probably the reaction was overdone. I think it was did not make sense to have that kind of reaction. But uh, it was expected that whenever you have this kind of change, the currency will get weaker. But I don't think the lira will continue at this weakness. I think it will be steady going forward. How do you protect yourself as an investor against currency fluctuations? Well, what we do is we try to look at uh, purchasing power parity as one measure and other measures of whether we think the currency will get stronger or weaker. And then we, if we see that the currency is going to get weaker or is getting weaker, we then make a choice of stocks which will benefit from this weakness. So in some ways, a weak currency can actually help us to perform better. So for example, in Turkey, we have one investment in a software company that exports its products. So they're getting foreign exchange coming in, and of course their costs are in Turkish lira, which is getting weaker. So that's the kind of thing we take into consideration. So we try to emphasize that currency can be your helper instead of your detractor. Uh, Mark, one of the big subjects in the United States, uh, but I think it also applies in emerging markets, is the so-called reflation trade. Uh, is it coming? Is it here? Has it already had its time? For example, oil prices actually started to come down over the last week or two, although they spiked up briefly with that Suez issue. Uh, what do you make of the reflation trade? As an EM investor, is this the time to go in for the countries and the stocks it will benefit from the reflation or not? Well, first of all, I believe that uh, looking at what the Fed is doing, we're not going to see a big spike in the inflation indices that we measure, CPI. As you know, I'm not a great believer in those, uh, those statistics. But anyway, uh, you're not going to see a big spike in those numbers. And of course, the emerging market countries, in fact, the world, Europe included, looks at the U.S. and concludes that, hey, inflation in America is not going anywhere. Therefore, we're not going to get hit with that same kind of situation. So the expectation is, first of all, inflation will, as measured by the CPI, will not raise its ugly head, number one. Number two, the U.S. dollar will get weaker because of the big spending program that the Biden administration has. 
And of course, we're already seeing emerging market currencies getting stronger against the US dollar. There's been recently a little spike in the US dollar index getting a little stronger, but basically the US dollar index is at a weak point and probably will get weaker going forward, which again is very good for emerging markets. As you look at emerging markets as investments, uh, do you divide it up between the, the, the investments that are really tied to commodities uh, as opposed to those tied to uh, IT investment and communications? Because typically people talk about North Asia, for example, as being much more oriented toward communications, IT, but some other uh, uh, places like Mexico, like Brazil, being more tied to commodities. Uh, that's a very important question because we have investments in Brazil and South Africa and so forth, but we haven't been in the, uh, in the commodity area at all for a number of reasons. One, of course, is the environmental problem. You know, you have these environmental challenges. Nevertheless, commodity prices have moved up very dramatically and very nicely. But we decided that we're going to focus on technology and not only the software, but also the hardware. Uh, we're looking at things like uh, computer ICs, uh, the software that goes into semiconductors, that sort of thing, the nuts and bolts, because this explosion in technology and the internet is going to be with us for quite some time. Of course, it's been accelerated during the COVID crisis, but going forward, we're going to see a continuing demand for these goods and services. Thanks to Mark Mobius of Mobius Capital Partners. Coming up, tech CEOs have a showdown on Capitol Hill. Former FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler on whether there is a regulation that can fix misinformation on social media. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The CEOs of Facebook, Twitter, and Alphabet face another round of grilling from lawmakers on the subject of disinformation in social media. Former FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler has seen tech from both sides as a regulator and as an investor. We asked him whether there was any regulation that could fix misinformation on social media. It looks pretty clear that there'll be something that will be done to deal with the issues of information going to children. Um, I was interested that um, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, as he was questioned by Congressman Welch, um, seemed to endorse the idea of a new digital platform agency, which is something that uh, a group and I have been advocating for some time, as you know. Um, so I think that Congress is actually trying to find what solutions might be. And that for the first time, we began to hear the CEOs saying that they might be receptive. So I wonder, Tom, from your experience, uh, can you have a new agency, a digital platform agency really involved in this, setting standards, maybe enforcing standards, and not curtail innovation? Because that's the argument you always hear is once you start doing that, you're going to really squash a lot of innovation. It might not hurt Facebook, but it might hurt the next Facebook. That is a really good question. And one of the things that we specifically in our proposal spent a lot of time on is how do you not um, uh, slow down uh, innovation or investment? And the key to that is that we need to have a regulatory structure that relates to the realities of today's digital markets rather than being built around the assumptions of yesterday's, what worked for yesterday's industrial markets. And then when you stop and think about it, the regulation that you and I are used to 
is industrial era concepts, industrial era structures. And we're not suggesting that's where you go now. That Those are rigid, sclerotic, and can have a negative impact. But what we were trying to propose was that there needs to be a more agile approach to regulation that perhaps is built around the kind of ideas that delivered us the technology revolution in the first place, and that's standard setting process. That, you know, you go from 3G to 4G to 5G to now 6G that they're working on the standards for to keep up with things. That's not the way that regulation, industrial style regulation works. But if that can be the way that a digital era uh, agile regulation works. Uh, Tom, it strikes me as you think about industrial era regulation, uh, basically we were regulating people. I mean, they might have been trains, but there was somebody driving the train or setting the price for the train. I wonder if that's true here, because the, the thing making the decision often is an algorithm, it's not a person. Is that an entirely different way to approach regulation? Yes, and what is that algorithm dealing with? It is dealing with data, with digital information. So the capital asset of the 21st century is data. How did the companies that were before the committee manage to get such a chokehold on economic activity? It was because they control the principal asset and that's data. It's the data that drives the algorithms. So just like Rockefeller controlled oil, they control data and we got to say, okay, how do we make sure that there's interconnection amongst those data so that there's not a series of choke points? At the same time, the, the thrust of the hearing was about, as I say, extremism and disinformation, really focusing on the terrible events of January 6th at the Capitol, as well as some of the vaxing issues, VAXX uh, right. issues about COVID-19. Uh, and, and I wonder whether when it comes to that, whether what we're seeing, the things we're objecting to is a bug or whether it's a feature. And by that, I mean this. As I understand the algorithms, they basically designed to say, take the most engaging piece of information, which unfortunately, because we're human, is often the most controversial or the most outrageous and put it up to the top of the queue. Is that a basic feature? Can you ever fix that problem? Well, it's kind of like Dr. Frankenstein, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, you, you create these software algorithms that then go run off and you don't even know what they're doing. So one of the big issues you got to deal with is how do we get insight into what the algorithms are doing? How do you understand, how do you get transparency? You know, Mark Zuckerberg, to his credit, keeps saying, well, we've got all of these kind of interventions. Okay, that's nice, but we don't have measurement for those interventions. We don't have oversight of those interventions. We don't know whether they're, where you draw the line between a PR move and, a, and something that's really substantive. And, uh, and that's where we need to be going when we talk about an algorithm-driven um, economy. That was former FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler. Coming up, we hear from special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard about political risk and economic risk and how to tell the difference. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. 
It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. One of the most basic and immediate ways that the government can affect the economy is through taxes. And this week, talk about taxes was all the rage, with reports that the White House is about to propose raising rates on corporations and on individuals making more than $400,000, with Secretary Janet Yellen telling Congress that they needed to raise revenue to make long-term investments such as infrastructure, and with Senator Bernie Sanders introducing legislation to take the corporate tax rates right back up to 35%. Well, what could all this mean for our economy? When it comes to questions like that, we turn to one place, and that is our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, for his perspective. So, Larry, give us a sense, as an economist, a macroeconomist, what is the right level of taxation? When is it too much? I don't think we're near the point where it's too much, David. Uh, we're looking at uh, huge planned investments, hugely important investments, but limits to the economy's capacity and risks of overheating ultimate limits on how much borrowing is uh, possible. So I think it would be better if we could pay for as much of that investment as possible. And I actually think the United States is now in a position where there are many ways we can raise tax revenue that will actually make the economy function better. As I've said before on your show, we could raise over a trillion dollars in ways that would make the tax system fairer, in ways that would reduce evasion activity, simply by doing a good job of enforcing uh, the tax law. There are plenty of shelters, carried interest is just one uh, example, 1031 real estate exchanges that avoid capital gains uh, is another, loopholes in the estate tax uh, is a third. There are plenty of examples of provisions that distort resources, that cause investments to go into less productive places, and at the same time, cost the Treasury revenue. I think there's a lot we can do in cooperation with other countries to prevent tax arbitrage across countries, um, it eroding our uh tax collections. There's no reason why income should be lost to cyberspace in uh, the 21st uh, century. I think that there's no rational economic case for corporate rate reductions on the scale that President Trump uh, legislated. The Business Roundtable would have been thrilled to have achieved a 25% uh, corporate tax rate There's no case for a 21% uh, corporate tax rate. 
So we can raise in the trillions of dollars before we do anything that even raises trade-offs about adverse economic performance. And beyond that, even if there is some consequence for the economy, taxes enable us to invest. As Justice Holmes famously said, taxes are what we pay for civilization. So I think uh, phased in when the economy has started uh, to overheat, there's a compelling case for a much larger level of uh, taxation. And I hope the administration will uh, work uh, to achieve it. Laura, let's just pick up on one specific point you made, that tax arbitrage internationally. We heard from Janet Yellen, your successor as Secretary of the Treasury this week, saying uh, she favors a minimum corporate tax, but that should be done in coordination with other countries. Would you favor a corporate minimum tax if we don't have that coordination? Because as a practical matter, is there any chance at all we're going to get it? I think we could. I think we should have some kind of corporate minimum tax. I think that if you report to your shareholders substantial profits, you should pay corporate taxes. And that should be a core principle of the way our tax system is designed. And that's something we can do uh, purely uh, domestically. Beyond that, I think there's very substantial will in most of the other industrial countries for cooperation to go after tax shelters and particularly to go after uh, tax havens. This is something that I worked on uh, frankly, back in the 1990s when I was Treasury Secretary, and we were making real progress against tax havens and regulatory uh, havens. The incoming George W. Bush administration thought that that was somehow morally wrong, and so they undid everything that we did. But I think that it's time to go after all of that again. And I think that there's no question that if you look at the tech companies, the Europeans are right, that there are substantial abuses in which they don't pay on a global basis nearly the tax rate that they should on their income. And I think we should, as a top priority, frankly, as a higher priority than any new trade agreement, when we talk about an international integration globalization agenda, uh, tax cooperation ought to be at the very top of uh, that list, along with regulatory enforcement to make sure that we don't have regulatory races to the bottom. Larry, I don't want to let you go before we go back to a subject that you and I have talked about before, and that is the question of inflation, Uh, because there's talk about whether this could be like what we saw in the 60s and 70s, particularly during the Vietnam War. We have, for example, your fellow economist Paul Krugman saying it's entirely different because we had a long time for that to come. We could react to it. We have some banks now saying it really is quite different. Do you think that it is that different? No, I think the main differences are that The fiscal expansion now is three or four times as large as LBJ's guns and butter. That the Fed didn't dream of blowing up its balance sheet, running rates at zero, saying that it didn't believe in acting in advance on inflation in uh, that era. That we didn't have a flexible currency that... uh, 
could uh, decline. So I think if there are any differences, the differences are such as to make one more concerned uh, now. And I think the assertion of commentators like Krugman that this took a really long time is just wrong. Inflation in some months um, had a one handle on it in 1966 and three years later in 1969 in certain months it had a six handle. So the idea that it can't ratchet up quickly is just plain uh, wrong. And so there are there are differences. We have had a different different history today than the history we had before 1966. But I actually think there is many differences suggesting this could be worse, as there are suggesting that uh, this uh, could be uh, could be better. If you were looking to unanchor inflation expectations. Having the Fed chair say that the Fed's going to have a new regime and is no longer sure that overheating the economy leads to inflation and having the administration say we're in an entirely new progressive era where policy is going to differ radically from what it has been for the last 40 years, those would seem like the best things you could do if you were trying to unanchor um, expectations. So it may all work out. It may be that a way will be found to bring it under control. But as I look at uh, $3 trillion of stimulus, $2 trillion of savings overhang, a major acceleration coming from COVID in the rearview mirror, rates, rates expected by the Federal Reserve to be at zero for three years, even in a booming economy. Right. Record right. growth right. Uh, this right. year, major expansion right. of a Fed balance right. sheet, and right. much Larry. new fiscal stimulus to Larry, come. Thank I'm you. worried. Thank you so much, Wall Street Week special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. A bad day at the office. We all have them. Those days when nothing seems to go right. When as hard as we try, it all goes wrong, and we get the blame whether or not it's our fault. So on a week like this one, we can take some solace from the fact that we're not alone. We could be, for example, the revered chancellor of Germany, who declared that she'd shut her entire country down, not even letting people go to the grocery store, for five full days over the Easter weekend, only to admit she'd made a bad mistake just 33 hours later. The idea of a so-called Easter lockdown was a mistake. It had its good reasons, but in such a short space of time, it wasn't possible to implement well enough. And then there's Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, who decided to take on Treasury Secretary Yellen over the relatively obscure question of increasing special drawing rights for the IMF, only to get in a very public disagreement over how they work and managed to trigger just about the first public display of irritation, maybe even anger, from Secretary Yellen that just about anybody has ever seen. It will have to issue Treasury bills or um, get to do it, but it will I, also... I rest earn, my case. It will, I rest no, my I'm case. sorry. I'm sorry, but it will also earn interest um, on any, uh, any amounts that it converts on behalf of other countries. But when it comes to a bad day at the office, even if your office is on a bridge, the prize this week goes to the poor captain of the container ship Ever Given, who managed to get a ship carrying 20,000 containers 
and it was as long as the Empire State Building is high, stuck sideways in a narrow part of the Suez Canal, blocking all other ships from using the canal. Sure, there was a sandstorm. Sure, there were severe winds, but I'm not sure history always grades on a curve. So whatever may have gone wrong for you this week at the office, and I hope there was nothing, though I bet there may have been something, you can take some comfort in being pretty sure you won't go down in history for it. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.